Hey everyone, just so you know, we recorded this episode when Apple Watches were still far from our minds. If you'd like our takes on ridiculous Red Sox Yankees rule breaking, sign stealing, and smartwatch wearing, tune in tomorrow. Same song, new time signature, new brand hustle with the long time arithmetic bait from the preacher man, number man, understand curve sliders, overs and underhands, black Batman, knock him out the park, pitch quiet, fire sniper, not the one you trying to box with, block work when the block turn jobless and triple Beams ain't the best means to weigh your options. Smarts, get smart with your smartness. Too busy surviving to argue about Darwin. Hello and welcome to episode 1106 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer and in Oregon where Ash is falling outside his window, it's Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. It's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Normally some types of ash, I guess, would interest you if they were the result of a volcanic explosion of some sort, but that is not the kind of ash that is falling right now. Yeah, so we have forest fires. We have fires all over the state, and now granted the majority of them are older and the majority of them started by lightning, but there is one particular fire that is new, started over the weekend in a very, very popular and beautiful and scenic and predicted area known as the Columbia River Gorge. There is a fire started by some irresponsible teenager playing with fireworks, and the fire has spread, uh, I think it spread 12 miles overnight, which I don't know much about fires. And so now I know how one fire has moved. I will now wait to collect data on how hundreds of other fires move to see if 12 is a lot, but it feels like 12 is a lot. And uh, the winds are blowing from east to west. And so ash from the fire is currently falling like a light dusting of snow in Oregon, where it is also 100 degrees and bone dry. So conditions are bad, going to get worse. And one of the most beautiful parts of the country is actively being destroyed because teenagers can't help themselves but play with things that blow up. And I know it's not their fault because we've all done it, but also it is their fault. And <laughs> I hope they get to, get to go to teenager jail. <laughs> well, to segue from that into another natural disaster related topic, I guess that's not totally a natural disaster, but partially. We are still running our raffle for Houston Hurricane Harvey relief, and the response has been great. I am blown away by how generous everyone has been. We are now about to pass $8,000 which is amazing. Now, some of those people were probably planning to donate anyway and just decided to donate to this raffle because they could get some stuff out of it and support Effectively Wild and all of that. But it still is kind of overwhelming to see all of these emails come in just uh, almost on the hour or, or even more often my inbox is pinging and it's another person donating to the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund. If you are interested, I'm going to keep this open through, uh, let's say, Friday morning maybe i'll do the drawing at the end of the week friday afternoon so if you are still interested in getting in on this you can donate to the hurricane harvey relief fund at ghcf.org slash hurricane hyphen relief and you will be entered into a random drawing for an autographed microphone that no longer works but was used for many episodes of effectively wild and an autographed book and a t-shirt and russell carlton's upcoming book as well and just send your receipt forward it take a screenshot whatever to podcast at fangraphs.com and you will be entered into that drawing every 
increment of $10 gets you an entry into that drawing. So thanks to everyone who has responded. It would be amazing if we could get to 10000 and that is still a possibility, I think. So if you're wanting to get into it but dragging your feet, you still got a couple days and Thanks to everyone again. So we have a guest later on in this episode. It's Max Schleicher. He is an Effectively Wild listener, a Facebook group member, and he has made an incredibly informative and stat-heavy post about ballparks, which ones are good, which ones are bad, what they're good and bad at. This is using fan sentiment analysis of fan reviews of these ballparks. It is fascinating. We will talk to him just a little bit later. Any current events, baseball stuff you want to touch on? Uh, let's see. Just in regular baseball stuff, The uh, over the past 10 games, so you know, you look at the standings, there's the L10 category. Over the past 10 games, the Los Angeles Dodgers are 1-9. and nine. The Arizona mm-hmm. Diamondbacks are 10-0. and 0. The Diamondbacks have gained 9 games on the Dodgers in the past week and a half and so now they're only 12 and a half games <laughs> behind the Dodgers so even the Dodgers are in a, this horrible slump and they will not actually reach 116 wins because that's just not going to happen but they still despite everything they're still eight games clear of the next best team in Major League Baseball so uh, I guess there was the recent Sports Illustrated cover that what was it best team ever or something about the Dodgers seems like you probably shouldn't write the best team ever headline just kind of in general uh, or at least wait until things are done like last year's Cubs wait to write about them as one of the best teams ever until the season is over but in any case Dodgers slumping slash still great slash still best team in baseball by an easy margin Diamondbacks mm-hmm. can't lose Indians can't lose I guess that's what's going on teams pulling away in their divisions except for the American League East and uh, I guess related to the Indians partial soft segue here there is a little incident between Trevor Bauer who is eh, somewhat rootable I guess and Avisail Garcia was it was little miggy right one of the uh, one of the countless <laughs> right. little miggies so yes. there's a little showdown we know bauer's got a something of a let's say competitive streak in him and garcia has his own sort of i don't know garcia kind of would do that he takes a swing misses a pitch and then kind of like nods his head kind of deal which miguel cabrera also does i wonder if that's where the little miggy comes <laughs> from or maybe he's just kind of picked up the trait in any case it was monday i believe labor day indians playing a game against the white Sox, and trevor bauer was facing garcia and on the first pitch of the at-bat, Bauer hung a slider and Garcia fouled it off and kind of like nodded and looked out at the mound thinking, seeming to convey like, all right, all right, I'm on it. I got you. Even though if you're a hitter, you just missed a hung first pitch slider. You fouled it off. You got nobody. Anyway, <laughs> Bauer comes back. He's, he sees that and he thinks, okay, okay, we're doing this. He throws a second pitch breaking ball and Garcia fouls it off again, nods again like, I got you, even though now we have twice the amount of evidence that no, you don't <laughs> have him. And yeah. And so Bauer comes back with a third pitch curveball. Garcia swings and misses. Bauer points to the dugout to uh, show Garcia where to go. In Bauer's words, he says, uh, quote, he swung and missed. I decided to remind him of the rules of the game. Three strikes, you're out. Can go sit back in the dugout to his credit. He took it like a champ. He put his head down. He shut his mouth and he walked himself back to the dugout. Good for him. So I don't know what is interesting about this aside from boys will be boys and men are kind of stupid, but also competitiveness is fun. But what I liked about this is as Bauer, Bauer has a, a sort of viral or little interview quote that 
uh, was passed around all the different aggregators and Twitter and whatnot. His quote began, quote, he likes to run his mouth. This is Bauer referring to Garcia. He likes to run his mouth. You start sitting there talking, oh, they don't throw me fastballs. Why do they just throw me breaking balls? He said it before. Not sure he knows that the rules of the game say you can throw whatever pitch you want. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many people go up there. Like there's a general baseball trend that we're seeing now, and it's maybe led, maybe the Yankees are on the vanguard of this, but a trend away from fastballs because it is maybe the oldest baseball coaching technique or t- I don't know, oldest baseball instruction is just throw fastballs, work off your fastball, everything for your fastball. And then now more than ever, we have pitchers who are just like, no, because mm-hmm. they want fastballs. Why would we give in? And it's true. Why would you give in? Bauer in particular, he's, you know, say whatever you want to say about Trevor Bauer, but he is forward thinking. He's open minded in some ways. And he is certainly open minded in terms of fastball avoidance. He's been mm-hmm. working toward that end for a while. And if you have hitters who are just going up there thinking like, he's going to throw me a fastball. Why wouldn't he throw me a fastball? Come on, man up, throw me a fastball. Why would you throw a fastball? Why would you ever throw a fastball? So in conclusion, there are still too many fastballs thrown in baseball. That's my conclusion. Too many fastballs. Mm-hmm. Don't let hitters see fastballs. Work backwards. Can just turn everything upside down. Fastball revolution, anti-fastball revolution. I want to see it. I want to see it take off. Yeah, I'm confused about the state of that because there was some notice paid to that earlier in the year. Tom Berducci wrote about it in mm-hmm. SI. I've had him on the Ringer podcast to talk about it. And there have been like what the Yankees don't throw fastballs very much. Mm-hmm. So there's been attention to that or the Astros throw lots of sliders and breaking balls. But on the whole, I feel like it has maybe even swung back. I, I think Rob Arthur wrote something at 538 not long ago about whether and how pitchers are adapting to the home run spike. And I mm-hmm. think he noted in there that the fastball rate, which had declined, was suddenly on the upswing again, possibly because pitchers are trying to use it to avoid home runs in some way. If you look at the league-wide stats on the fan graphs, it doesn't seem as if there's been any decrease at all, really, in league-wide four-seam fastball percentage, at the very least. Right this season, we're at 37% four-seam fastballs. I guess this is now according to the Brooks Baseball classifications mm-hmm. as well. And that is very slightly down from 37.2 last season, but is higher than every previous season for which we have data before that, I think. Mm-hmm. So I don't know whether this is a thing that is actually happening on a, a league-wide basis. I guess 2007 and 8, it was higher. 2007, 8, 9, and maybe the data wasn't quite as great in those early years as it is now. But definitely relative to like the last several seasons, this season's fastball rate doesn't seem notable. So I can't tell whether this is a thing that is certainly happening in certain pitchers' cases and certain teams' cases, but maybe we're overgeneralizing to say that it's happening on a league-wide basis. I, I can't really tell. Based on this, it doesn't seem as if it's that huge a trend. Yeah, right. It should be happening on a league-wide basis, probably. But if you look mm-hmm. at the data, you've got four-seam fastball rate is up about two percentage points from its recent low, but it's sinkers, which teams are seem, or at least the league, overall uh-huh. seems to be avoiding more. Sinker rate is down, yeah. but about four and a half percentage points from its peak in 2012. 
Mm-hmm. So this would be reflective of teams trying to pitch less often down in the zone because that is where hitters have been targeting because pitchers have always been taught to work low. So as hitters adapt to that and try to elevate the low pitch, then pitchers will think, OK, well, then I'm going to do something else. And so I think that you've seen less and less conversation about the utility of having a sinker and you see more and more conversation about pitchers who are trying to throw four seam fastballs and work on the edges or, or work up because hitters are so good at hitting the low pitch. There are still, of course, pitchers like Dallas Keuchel or other sinker ballers, but it's become increasingly difficult to make that work and so you have a lot of these these four seamers that are starting to show up we've got chad green throwing a wicked four seamer all of a sudden i don't know where that came from but he's got it and he's throwing it a lot so it's a it's a difference in uh fastball ratios i guess if of course these numbers can be trusted and thanks to this conversation here is a very easy fangraphs post for me to write sometime in the near-term future uh-huh. yeah and i guess curveball rate is at its highest although it's also tied with 2012 so I don't know if that's all that meaningful. Yeah. But, but uh, look at the sliders. That's that's where yeah. you see a peak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as for Trevor Bauer, it's funny how the perception of him has changed. <laughs> I don't know the, the general perception of him, but initially he was like embraced by stat head types because it seemed like he had his unique throwing program and he was willing to experiment and do things differently. And we always like that by default. But then turned out that he's not really that good. He's just kind of, uh, you know, he's he's all right, but he's not really improving. And sometimes it seems as if maybe he's experimenting too much. I don't know whether that's fair or unfair, but his results haven't really improved. He's not better than a mid-rotation starter, certainly. And between that and some of his Twitter comments, which did not endear him, to people. He is now kind of, I think, someone people are probably tired of more than anything. So I don't know whether people are inclined to take Trevor Bauer's side in any kind of confrontation these days. Yeah, there are upsides and downsides to expressing skepticism that humans have had a role in climate change. We don't need to talk about that right now. Bauer, in his to his performance-specific credit, his strikeout rate is up substantially this year relative to last year and the rest of his career. So there are signs that he is improving. His ERA is still not very good, but his peripherals have gotten better. So Trevor Bauer, a person people are tired of, but still improving as a pitcher. So you know as these things work. Public opinion will probably shift again if he demonstrates that he is a good pitcher, then people will put up with his what some people might consider to be nonsense and what the scientific consensus mm-hmm. would agree is nonsense. But the people will still support an athlete who is good until he ceases being good. So while Trevor Bauer is having a pretty good second half, I think Indians fans are kind of on board. And then it, based on Bauer's history, probably won't be that long until they are back off board. Mm-hmm. All right. Is that it? Should we get to our guest? Yeah, that's that's plenty. We'll talk again tomorrow. That's fine for now. Yeah, we do talk a lot. All right. We'll be right back with Max. I wasn't cut out for the bigs. Guess I've been a fool. And middle school was just a bit of cruel ridicule. But when you step into the ranks of the man, it's like they push you from the high dive to the kiddie pool. Thanks. It's time to ballroom waltz that plank. We're little minnows in a small shark tank. You try to swim without getting blood in the water, but you're all heart and gust like a ballpark. Frank. All right. So we are joined today by Max Schleicher. He is a digital marketing manager at Review Trackers, which is a company that helps companies monitor and manage and analyze their online reviews, figure out what they're not doing well at, what they could do better at. More importantly, at least to me, maybe not to him, he is an effectively wild listener and Facebook group member. And he made a post some time ago in the Facebook group that grew into this really excellent and informative article on the Review Trackers website, which we will link to. But it is called Ranking MLB Stadiums by Fan Sentiment. 
and it's based on 130,000 baseball stadium reviews by actual people who have been to baseball stadiums. Max, hello. Hi, guys. How are you doing? We're doing well. So can you explain the methodology here? Because this it's a very long and thorough article, and it's clear that a lot of work went into this more than you expected, I'm sure. So can you describe how you arrived at these rankings? Sure. So it's a kind of data that probably a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with. Yeah. What I did for the methodology of this is basically uh, collected all of these stadium reviews. So as you mentioned, 130,000 different stadium reviews. And then uh, my company has an algorithm that reads text and then analyzes that text for keywords. Mm -hmm. And then it gives a score for each of those keywords. So it reads a review that says, hey, the nachos were great at uh, Citizens Bank Ballpark. And then it says, "Uh, this person liked the nachos. It extracts that keyword and gives it a score. Mm -hmm. So I could take this algorithm and apply it to 130,000 baseball stadium reviews. And suddenly I take all those text reviews and convert them into data where all of those reviews have uh, scores for individual elements that uh, are featured in that review. So the nachos, uh-huh. the seats, et cetera. So basically it takes 130,000 baseball stadium reviews and turns it into something like 550,000 different keywords with scores about different uh, parts of the baseball stadium experience. So I took uh-huh. all that and then uh, figured out different kind of categories for how uh, people talk about stadiums. So I put some of these keywords into food and drink, like nachos or hot dogs, et cetera, and other, thing, and other keywords into different parts of different topics, like family friendliness or the facility and that, all that kind of stuff, and use that as a way to rank stadiums, but then also as a way just to kind of find different uh, outliers and insights about different, different particular stadiums and what they do strangely or much better or much worse than other stadiums. Uh And so would these reviews have been posted on like Yelp or some sites like that? Exactly. It's all public data. So it's like Facebook and Google reviews, all that kind of stuff. Uh And I would imagine that if someone writes the nachos were really great, not maybe that would (laughs) kind of confuse an algorithm a little bit, but (laughs) probably occasional things there where it could kind of trip up a a software. But on the whole, there's probably a, a pretty decent correlation between positive comments and positively classified comments. Yeah, definitely. All of the for me to poop on kind of uh, <laughs> right <laughs> things or psychs, those those probably tripped up the algorithm. Uh-huh. But I'm I'm banking on the fact that uh, that's not a st- statistically significant group of these of these yeah. reviews. I think many of the not reviews would be clustered around the year 2006. Uh, was, <laughs> yeah. was, uh, what was it? Bill James who had the the line that if the statistic fully matches the eye test and it's not really useful, and if it completely counters the eye test, then it's probably lying to you. But if you have a few outliers, then you then you might have something there. And I've butchered whatever the uh, the actual phrasing of the statement was. But for the most part, just kind of eyeballing the reviews, a lot of it kind of comports to what you would expect. You see the better stadiums in your head, there's sort of toward the left, the better reviews and the worst ones to the right. The extreme ones aren't really surprising, but was there was there anything in particular that stood out to you that you didn't expect? Like, were there specific stadiums that either did way better or way worse than you expected going into this? Because I'm sure you already had some preconceived notions about what these numbers would look like. Totally. I'm glad you butchered the Bill James quote, so I didn't have to. <laughs> but yeah, that uh, really jives with my experience. So as you mentioned, like the ones, they're ones that are just as to be expected. Everyone raves about Camden Yards or PNC Park, and those do really, really well. But uh, the two big outliers were Wrigley Field and Fenway Park, and to a lesser extent, like Yankee Stadium and Dodger Stadium. Some of these stadiums that, uh, you know, if you were to ask uh, the sort of fan on the street to say, like, hey, what are some iconic baseball stadiums or that kind of thing, they would jump to the top of the list. These stadiums uh, had 
or I should take a step back and just focus on only Wrigley and Fenway. But those two stadiums, Wrigley and Fenway, had kind of an interesting uh, situation where they were the only two stadiums that scored above average in terms of their global ranking. So when people give a star rating in an actual review, they rate Wrigley Field and Fenway Park above average. But the sentiment in the actual reviews themselves is below average compared to the rest of stadiums. So in other words, people are saying something like, or I'll actually just pull up an actual quote here, where someone goes to Fenway Park and they say, oh, Fenway, five stars. Man, the bathrooms are terrible. The beer's really expensive. I couldn't see anything. My seat was facing the wrong way, but I had a great time and I would love to come back. And so, so like, you see uh, this sort of like number of negative moments in every review is, is like, is suggested it's kind of like a stadium like Marlins Park, but the overall global ranking is much, is much higher than you would expect. So it's a really interesting phenomenon. I, you know, just kind of one of the fun part of, about doing something like this is that you can always go and for each one of these data points, you can just actually go and read all of the reviews. So some of that's kind of confirmation bias, but you can go back and say like, well, if people are saying this, what are they actually saying? And so I read a lot of funny reviews of people uh, talking about things like that, where I remember one couple had like driven six hours to go to Wrigley. The game was rained out and they wanted, they just went to go see a statue of Ryan Sandberg and this statue was closed due to some like construction situation and they couldn't do anything that they wanted to do, but they said it was like the best time of their life. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like charmingly human too, I think, for all these people who just are having great times at uh, at these stadiums, despite all the struggles. To- yeah, so so that makes sense that you'd have the you know the oldest stadiums high in that kind of intangibles area, mm-hmm. right? Like a historical ambiance at Fenway and and Wrigley. Maybe you have lifelong attachments to those places, etc. And so yeah, they're more than the sum of their parts. So that's uh, that's interesting. That's what you would expect to see, I guess. So was there anything that stood out? I guess in the food area, I guess uh, just yeah, most definitely. popular ballpark foods overall, and places that excelled or trailed in any specific kind of food sure uh one kind of cool thing you can do with this data is is you can you know compare stadium by stadium but then you can also just compare like in general how do nachos compare to hot dogs or something like that (laughs) so one of the most interesting findings i thought was it was just comparing the different menu items across all stadiums and so summing up every time someone mentions a hot dog regardless of what stadium it is and comparing that to another menu item and uh, one of the cool things you see is that hot dogs score super, super mediocrely, if that is the right way to say that. Uh-huh. They, um, I think that the average hot dog score is just barely positive. And, and so it's actually one of the lower uh, menu score items. And you would, so basically everyone's going to a baseball stadium, getting a hot dog and kind of like being, oh, that was okay, but not really yeah, worth it. Replacement but, level hot dogs, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Tons of replacement level hot dogs. <laughs> but other, other, other menu items are much, score much, much higher. So barbecue and burgers are like four times higher than a hot dog in terms of average sentiment. And uh, so that's super interesting to me because hot dogs are by far and away the most popular mentioned item for a food item. I think they get six times more mentions than any other menu item so people are basically going to baseball stadiums thinking they've got to get a hot dog getting a hot dog not being very satisfied with it so what the what this suggests is you know to me is that hey if you go to a baseball stadium you know even though you think you should get a hot dog probably if you get something else you're going to enjoy it like much much more mm-hmm. one of the things that stands out to me at least from this data is you there are a lot of new ballparks in baseball at least to me maybe i'm getting old but a lot of the ballparks feel like they're pretty new 
And uh, mm-hmm. the newest of all the ballparks, of course, is SunTrust Park in Atlanta. And it doesn't score very well. In particular, I'm, if you look at the data just by facility rankings, it's third from the bottom. And it doesn't do so well in most of the other categories as well. So even though you were going over 30 different ballparks, and so this is a very comprehensive and, and detailed analysis, what is it that you found about SunTrust Park? Or I guess maybe what isn't it? about SunTrust Park. What seems to be missing from the newest ballpark in the game? Yeah, so one thing that uh, jumped out with SunTrust was there's a parking issue. There are a ton of complaints about parking. I saw something like 112 uh, different complaints. Mm, which was not unexpected, <laughs> right? That you'd have a hard time getting there. <laughs> yeah, though it's it's you know not necessarily like travel, but actual the, the parking itself. And so mm-hmm. I looked into, again, went and actually just read some of the reviews and saw what people said. And I saw a couple of sort of patterns of complaints. And basically, Basically, uh, you can prepay for parking, but then because there's a bunch of different parking lots, it creates some confusion. So you can imagine you drive all the way to SunTrust Park, you've got this prepaid thing on your phone, you get to the stadium, and it turns out it takes you an hour to find your actual prepaid spot because you have spot, you know, 273, and you've got to find it. And it creates a, sort of like an additional hassle when you first arrive at the stadium. And there was some confusion with reviewers, too, who went to the stadium expecting to be able to tailgate, but then they found out their prepaid parking lot doesn't open until two hours before the game or an hour before the game and they had to kill some time before they could actually tailgate. So there's so it just seems like there's some logistical issues with how they're running everything at SunTrust and and which is sort of to be expected, I think for, potentially for a new stadium. Um, and so they're still kind of working that out and fans are probably still kind of working that out. But you can see that, you know, a fair amount if you can imagine just like you go to the stadium and you, it's you have high expectations and if your first impression of it is really negative, then it can leave a sort of lasting impact on how you experience the rest of the stadium. I guess I should say speaking of poor facilities ratings. So we can get this out of the way. There's one There's one ballpark that stands out the most in terms of these facility rankings and in all the rankings overall. We're going to Oakland. There are 30 ballparks and by the facility rankings, by the, the data you put out, only one of them has a negative facility ranking. You know, nothing surprising here, but how desperate is the situation in Oakland? What what were what were the good things people said about Hodot Co Coliseum? Which I guess yeah, we shouldn't so call it that anymore. It's Oakland, Alameda or some yeah. Anyway. So <laughs> Oakland has uh, terrible facility scores. It has the worst bathroom score in uh, in baseball. I think it's uh, the score is something like a negative point five and the lowest you can go is neg- is would be a negative one, whereas like uh, <laughs> probably the average is something like a positive point so Oakland does really poorly. Fans complain a lot about the bathrooms. Perhaps what this shows you is there isn't really too much fooling of fans. If you have like <laughs> kind of mediocre facilities, people will complain about that. We see like in other stadiums where they revamp their facilities, we see that fan sentiment talking around the, those parts of the facilities, the bathrooms, etc. goes up. Yeah, fans complain a lot about Oakland, but they, in terms of like what it does well, actually, besides like having nice weather, which, you know, <laughs> can't really say too much about, but they, uh, it does have, as it turns out, the most popular nachos. I think the highest percentage of fans talking about nachos occurs in Oakland. And I think something like three of the top seven or three of the top five are California stadiums. So there's something about nachos uh, out west. But yes, so that Oakland has that going for it, though it doesn't have, you know, nice bathrooms or facilities or any uh, other those kind of things, which are nice to have, too. (laughs) And speaking of SunTrust and hot dogs, SunTrust, it seems, has the worst hot dogs. And you mentioned well, at the top of the hot dogs list, you have AT&T Park, but you mentioned that Dodger Dogs only rank fifth on that list, but they get way more mentions than any other kind of hot dog. I don't know if that's just because it's easier for the 
algorithm to detect the phrase Dodger dogs or what, but mm-hmm. you write that maybe there is value in branding your food, just having some kind of team specific name for your food, even if it's not the greatest, people will develop an attachment to it totally i mean it's, the dodger dog is i think it's like a it's a larger hot dog i want to say it's something like 10 inches or something like that and and um it's been around since 1958 so they so it has a kind of brand identity to it yeah but if you think about what we said earlier about hot dogs it's the most popular food item at a stadium and so if you just think about it fans are going to come to the stadium and buy a hot dog and so if but if you give your hot dog a name it's you know, give some sort of ownership to the experience and brand value to the experience. So it would be like if McDonald's just decided not to call it McChicken the McChicken, but just call it Chicken Sandwich. Uh-huh. That would be like, well, what's going on? So baseball stadiums, everyone's just calling a hot dog a hot dog a lot of the time. And so there may be some opportunity there for stadiums, teams to kind of rethink how they do their basic hot dog and brand it in a particular way that gives some ownership. And maybe like the Dodger dog, you know, make it longer or add like a little bit of difference to it that uh, makes it so it's unique to that stadium that may Mm -hmm. go a long way to improving the sentiment around those hot dogs yeah people really like ballpark barbecue wow yeah it's impressive (laughs) i feel like it's like a you know like a sleeping giant that baseball has like kind of become a barbecue and burger or could become a barbecue and burger sport more than a hot dog sport are there any other observations like that that stand out to you, whether it's about a, a particular park maybe that surprised you compared to the public perception or a food item or, or whatever? Yeah. Uh, one thing that really interested me was PNC, which scored well for a couple different things. And it has really great family score ratings. And both it and Kauffman Stadium do once a week family. Every Sunday, they have a family day and they, people really respond to that. So they know that every Sunday they can come to the ballpark and there's going to be a specific activity for their kids to to do a specific kid giveaway. So that's really great. I think the stadium's kind of figured out a way to tap into that market. But the other kind of neat thing that I noticed about PNC was that 16% of PNC's reviews mention the view. Uh And that's sort of, I think, taken for granted when we think about PNC, you know, Every time you watch it on TV or you go there, you you see the you know the Roberto Clemente Bridge and you see the Pittsburgh skyline. But like if you had never known what PNC looked like and someone was like, oh yeah, the the baseball stadium in Pittsburgh, your fo- your first thought would not be like gorgeous view of you know like <laughs> urban landscape or whatever. And what's interesting though about that is that uh, and I, I mean no disrespect to Pittsburgh, so but <laughs> you know what I mean. But people would be like, oh New York skyline or Chicago skyline, those things mm-hmm. would jump to mind, but not necessarily one in Pittsburgh. But 16% of reviewers are talking about the view in Pittsburgh. And that's really interesting because that's kind of like part of a global experience that everyone at the stadium can have, regardless of where you're sitting. Yeah, You can see the view. And so it's just sort of like a, it raises, in a sense, the floor of the stadium experience. You have something always beautiful to look at while the game is going on. And that seems to really resonate with fans. And that may be like a really small, dumb thing, but you know, like that is potentially really interesting insight. If you're building a new stadium and you're thinking about air currents and all this kind of stuff, but you can also just think about like, hey, if, if we turn or we make sure that the outfield is facing a particular way that gives a really satisfying view to the fans, that's going to just create a different sort of atmosphere and, and ambiance for those fans. You have lower in the article, you have a section where you highlight trends in fan sentiment over time. And this is interesting to me. Uh, I don't know how well you recall it off the top of your head, but let's find out. You have uh, going back to 2011, you have some information that goes back that seven years and you track facility and family and fan experience and food and drink ratings over time. And what jumps out to me, there are just some general increases, although I guess in the last few years. 
ballparks have gotten less family friendly. But anyway, between 2011 and 2012, the first two years in your data set, what looked like pretty significant leaps on mm. MLB average in both fan experience and facilities. So do you do you think that that's something where there's some real signal or is it just maybe there's there's less data when you go back a few years or what do you think would help to explain those two pretty massive jumps in these two ratings that's true there could be some uh, some noise in the data it could be that in general reviews have gotten more popular and then and the sort of like culture around leaving reviews online has increased in a certain way that's changed the kind of information that people put into those reviews and so it could be a, a problem with the data so that's a good point the other thought about it could be that you know we have probably just i'm trying to think like Target Field, Dodger Stadium renovations could be a couple things like that that entered into into the stadium picture that drove some of those results higher. I think Marlins Park was that 2012. That's I think that was 2012. Idea. So yeah, I don't have a real good answer for you, but it could be a couple of those. Could be a couple of those factors. One, just problem with the data, as you pointed out, or two, those could, could be driven by like changes at some of those large stadiums or new stadiums. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any kind of correlation between team success and the ballpark rating? Did you look at that at all? I don't know. I mean, that obviously fluctuates over time how the team is doing, but I wonder whether there's just a more positive association with everything when you're going to a winning team's park. The uh, the sort of halo effect right. potentially of going to winning. Yeah, I looked at the initially, so I don't have a great finding on this yet because it uh, would require kind of more work in a different direction. But when I first started off, that was my initial question too, or one of my initial questions. And so I looked at, just did a quick correlation calculation for how baseball stadium ratings compared to their home record for those teams over five years and compared that. I actually have all of this data for like all the major sports. So I have something like 300 different stadiums in a database. And uh, so I compared baseball to football and basketball and hockey. So what I found was that in that kind of preliminary bit of research, which I think we need more research for it to be official and all good kind of things like that. But in a preliminary research, I found that baseball rankings or baseball like review scores didn't correlate with the home record or the overall record of the team. But in other sports, there was a stronger correlation. So it was like 0.4 in football, but like zero or 0.1 in baseball and that's potentially interesting and uh you know have to do some more work to uh kind of to make that you know a more official finding but you know that sort of jives too with i think what we would think about baseball stadiums uh and baseball stadium experiences was is that you don't go necessarily for like a win or lose outcome it's more about sort of a day at the ballpark and but if you go but football obviously has fewer games and so like the experience of going to the stadium is, is potentially more tied or more related to the actual effect of that game has on your on your season itself and uh, so i thought that was pretty interesting and potentially also that may suggest why, to a certain extent, we sort of fetishize baseball stadiums is because like the actual experience of going to the stadium kind of like supplants the result of the game in terms of importance. And so, so yeah, definitely uh, that's something to look into with this. The other thing I did look into was you can track. So I didn't include in, in terms of like for the results in, in this report that I published, I didn't include team names as one of the keywords that I uh, scored and identified. But if I look at just team names, when uh, fans are mentioning a team name in their review, you can sort of track and plot the sentiment around that over time. And naturally, that definitely correlates with team success. And I looked at that. And so you can see, I looked at like the past five World Series winners, and you can see the sort of slow increase of the Cubs and then jumping up in 2015 and 2016. And, and um, so you can definitely track that. But um, I left that part of the data out for this analysis. Mm-hmm. Personally, I like to go to baseball stadiums for the view. 
you notice you have a, a whole br- uh, ranking that's broken out by the food type. So we've talked about how barbecue comes out number one. People seem to just lose their minds over ballpark barbecue, followed by popcorn, which I always liked as sort of the snack that takes the longest. So I, uh, <laughs> it's kind of my preference at a ballpark. You figure you're going to spend eight to ten dollars on something anyway. You might as well get something that'll take you a few innings to complete. And we've talked about hot dogs, hot dogs, classic ballpark food. Yeah, very little discussion. We'll leave out the fact that Cracker Jack is nowhere here. That's a very specific product that I don't know if anyone buys that anymore. But also peanuts. Peanuts are getting uh, maybe shortchanged or maybe people just don't care about peanuts at the ballpark anymore. But it seems like what you have sort of helped to reveal is that you have your classic ballpark foods and then you have your actual preferred ballpark food. So I know we already talked about this a little bit, but like you think ballpark, you get a, a hot dog or peanuts and Cracker Jack. And it seems like people don't really respond very well to that. Generally speaking, do you think that, I don't know, there is an under saturation of the the preferred foods or i guess it's hard to tell what food stands have been opening in ballparks over time but like should stadiums be opening even more barbecue places like should they have competing barbecue places or or sausage specialists because the the hot dog scene seems to be not responded to very well yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's I think, too, there's uh, two ways to think about it. One's from like a marketing perspective or from a business perspective. Maybe the margin on hot dogs is so high that stadiums are less incentivized to offer more barbecue because they know that, hey, a hot dog only costs like $1.17 and we can sell a whole bunch. So there's that side of it, which may affect kind of what stadiums are doing. But yeah, I think that there's potentially sort of like undersaturation or under, yeah, undersaturation, particularly in some markets. So for example, in terms of barbecue, the most popular barbecue that I saw was in Camden yards and uh, it's like boogs barbecue he boogs powell's barbecue but you see that like kansas city and, and the two texas stadiums don't really have very popular barbecues and that just to me seems like those stadiums are missing a huge opportunity to speak to a local regional identity thing and to touch into something which maybe like the fans will really enjoy like barbecue uh, given these scores and that sort of thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is there any additional research that you're hoping to do or would have liked to do oh uh, yeah i mean i was really hopeful to get something about like uh, mascots and mm-hmm. mascot races and <laughs> seventh inning stretches. Mm-hmm. But that kind of stuff is just really hard to put into one bucket because people, the words they use for to describe all those things are just kind of all over the place. Yeah. You know, every mascot has a different name. People call the races different things. Uh, you know, the seventh inning stretch may be called the seventh inning, inning stretch or maybe referred to as the song that they sing in that stadium. So that kind of stuff is really kind of hard to bucket. And I, if, if I had more time, I could, you know, do a lot of legwork and figure out what every stadium calls these things and then and track it that way. But uh, so that's something I missed out on for sure. Mm-hmm. Could fall into fan experience, I guess, as it's part of that maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And uh, as a fan, I mean, I love the mascot races. So that, that definitely uh, hit me hard. I recently went to Coors Field where they have a tooth race have you seen this no <laughs> yes they dental, have uh, dental yeah, yes they have uh they have a tooth and a toothbrush and a tube of toothpaste that race and uh <laughs> which i just thought was brilliant my the only disappointing thing i thought was that uh they, the finish line was not made of dental floss but other than, <laughs> other than that it was really well executed so yeah it should just end they all collide and then the toothbrush gets the toothpaste on it lands on the tooth and then everything's taken care <laughs> but yeah, the, the dental floss would have been perfect. Is there any saving soda or is that just something that people are going to hate 
everywhere <laughs> because obviously the margin there is like through the roof. But again, looking at this graph you have of fan sentiment by menu items, you've got barbecue way to the left and all of the different categories have at least slightly positive reviews except for soda. And there's nothing you can do to dress up soda at a ballpark here. You have soda and then it's expensive. But is it uniform across the board or were there? Did you identify? Are there places that somehow like do soda better or worse? Yeah, I don't think that I've found any that did soda better. And I think you're exactly <laughs> right. It's just like a high margin thing. Everyone feels cheated when they order soda <laughs> because it's like I'm paying $7 for soda. I could have just brought in my own Sprite. Here I am. I'm forced to do this because I'm thirsty and sitting in the sun. So it's really a, just a kind of a bad, a bad situation. It's terrible. Listen to me, ballpark <laughs> marketers. If you could just charge regular price for soda, people would love you for it. They would love you for it. Like a soda for two dollars. Forget you should. This is this is your research. Not mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that'd be interesting. Or doing or just doing an experiment where they sometimes have dollar hot dog days. What if they had dollar mm-hmm. soda days? If yeah. people would just be so ecstatic to have a reasonably priced soda. Yeah. Exactly, especially for like the the afternoon games where it's going to be the hottest. Just just give them just give them a break. Like, how much are you really making? <laughs> how much are you really making a year on soda? Your investment in a baseball team is in the team itself. It's not in the. I'm getting worked up here. It's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, there's just so much. I feel like you could spend an hour on this page because not only do you have the overall rankings and the category rankings, which are themselves sortable, but you also have breakdowns of all 30 parks so no matter what team you are a fan of you can go and find out the specifics for your park and i guess the big takeaway is that people like ballparks as you point out (laughs) on this page they like some ballparks more than others they like some aspects of ballparks more than others but overall as you mentioned every ballpark is like between a a four and a 4.7 or something like that out of five which is high but people like baseball and ballparks and if you're going to a ballpark you're going for a a fun recreational activity so you already kind of have a leg up in getting people to enjoy their time there so that makes it uh, even worse if people don't like your ballpark because you have such a a head start on that (laughs) (laughs) so the top five i guess we haven't mentioned you've got oriole park at camden yards number one overall then pnc at&t safeco and kaufman And the bottom five is, as we mentioned, the Coliseum, SunTrust, Rogers Center, Dodger Stadium, and Yankee Stadium. I guess that would maybe be the biggest surprise here is how low Dodger Stadium shows up. And to be honest, I mean, I've only been to Dodger Stadium once and I just I didn't see the appeal of it right away. I get that it's like now, I guess, the third oldest ballpark in baseball, which is crazy. So there is some history associated with it and it it has a different look and it feels very LA and and it fits the team, I guess, and the surroundings. But I wasn't blown away by it because I was expecting it to be one of the the best ballparks in baseball just based on what I had heard. And I don't know, I've heard from other people that you need to spend more time there to appreciate it. But evidently, judging by these ratings, the people who have spent a lot of time there are are not rating it all that high. Maybe that has to do with the travel and the parking and the traffic and all of that too, but it's a lot lower than you would probably think. Yeah, it could also be potentially, you know, ticket prices. That's one thing Uh I didn't look into. I wonder if like stadiums with higher ticket prices, if that causes people to be more uh, critical in their reviews. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like in the same way that like as Jeff pointed out that soda gets all this negative sentiment because it's so expensive. I wonder if, if stadiums like Yankee Stadium or potentially Dodger Stadium that might have higher ticket prices get more criticism from fans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not surprised to see the new Yankee Stadium so low. I'm not particularly enamored of it myself. I wonder what this would have turned up for old Yankee Stadium. I would assume that it would have had the same cathedral effect as you call it 
that Wrigley mm-hmm. and, and Fenway did where it was greater than the sum of its parts. $2.3 billion Yankee Stadium rates lower than Tropicana Field. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was pretty nervous about that. I was like, uh, I can't believe I'm going to go. And like, <laughs> this, is, this is what it's going to show. And the Yankee fans are going to think I'm garbage. But yeah, yeah. Well, I've been there. Well, I mean, they're the ones leaving these reviews. Yeah, mostly. That's true. Right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I don't know if you are going to be reaching out as part of this, but I'm going to be interested to see what kind of feedback you might get publicly or privately from teams. Yeah. Because I'm sure they all have their own metrics for how they think their ballpark is perceived, but this is definitely the most thorough public analysis that I think I can recall. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's tricky because you have teams and then you also have the vendor who manages a lot of the, the in-stadium mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And the vendors, actually, it's kind of like an interesting part of the baseball economy. So there's like Delaware North, the seven stadiums. There's one called Levi Restaurants that does another like seven stadiums. And I think there's another one or two that have a big chunk of the market. But like, so Delaware North, whom I talked to, hey, they've got the top rated stadium, but I know they also do like Globe Life, which is like 11th or something like that. And so I think they feel sort of at uh, cross purposes or something like that to champion one of theirs and say, hey, yeah, mm-hmm. we do a great job. But then at the same time, if, if another one of their stadiums doesn't rank particularly well, they feel sort of like at at odds with it. So it's hard to get comment from uh, anyone in the industry for that. Interesting. Anyway, there's so much information here and I encourage everyone to go check it out. I, I won't read the URL because there are a lot of hyphens and it probably be <laughs> tough to remember if you are in the middle of your commute or something, but I will link to it in the Facebook page. I will link to it at Fangraphs, all the usual places. You've got to go check this out and you can find Max on Twitter at Max S-C-H-L. Max, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you wanted to mention? Any particularly funny reviews you came across in the process of doing this or just any other statistical tidbits we haven't touched on? You know, I think we talked about Oakland, so I'll read the one <laughs> that jumped out at me. There was a one reviewer who reviewed the bathrooms at the Oakland uh, Coliseum. He said, they were so gross, the team should just burn down the toilets and start from scratch. <laughs> uh, that's great. All right. Go read it. Go read the whole thing. Max, thank you for doing this and for coming on to tell us about it. Yeah, thanks very much. And thanks to the Facebook community for uh, giving me some initial direction. Mm-hmm. Again, if you'd like to get in on the raffle, just go to ghcf.org slash hurricane hyphen relief. Make a donation of $10 or some multiple of $10. Forward some proof of that to podcast at fangraphs.com and you'll be entered into our raffle. Those instructions are written down in the Facebook group pinned to the top of the page. You can join the group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can also rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Tunes, and you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Spencer, Dylan Feldman, Ben Gabrielli, Ben Tarhan, and Vince Morales. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to Dylan Higgins as well for editing assistance. If you're looking for something else to listen to, Michael Bauman and I have our first ever mailbag episode together on the Ringer MLB show feed. We had a heated disagreement in our first response. Keep your questions and comments coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast at fancrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will be back very soon. on the ground.